Each month, the Security Ledger podcast informs and entertains an audience of thousands of technology and information security professionals. If that sounds like an audience your company is trying to reach, consider sponsoring one of our podcasts. We offer per-episode sponsorships of our weekly podcasts, which feature news, analysis, and discussion of the most important cybersecurity topics of the day. Or you can commission a custom podcast to highlight your executives, researchers, and subject matter experts. To learn more, point your web browser to securityledger.com slash sponsor. Hello and welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's episode of the podcast number 206. I think the most fundamental thing is saying that privacy or digital privacy is a fundamental human right and making it front and center. Giving the rights to the people there we can go and say, don't track me. And even to the going to the extent and saying, delete my information if you have anything. That is the most fundamental difference. Uh, I think that, that GDPR kind of enabled. Data theft and misuse has been an acute problem in the United States for years. But despite the passage of time, little progress has been made to date in addressing it. Just this week, for example, SITA, an IT provider for the world's leading airlines, said that a breach had exposed data on potentially millions of airline travelers. Just the latest in a steady drumbeat of data breach and hacking revelations affecting nearly every industry and every resident of the United States. In the EU, the rash of massive data breaches from retail firms, data brokers, and more in recent years led to the passage of GDPR, the world's first comprehensive data privacy regime. But in the U.S., despite the passage of a hodgepodge of state data privacy laws, no comprehensive federal law exists. That means that today, in 2021, no clear federal framework covers critical issues in the United States, such as data ownership, responsibility for disclosure of data breaches, private rights of action that individuals may have to sue negligent firms that mishandle their data, and so on. But that may be about to change. In a closely divided Washington, D.C., data privacy and data security is the rare issue that has bipartisan support. And now, with Democrats in control of Congress and the White House, a push is on to pass pro-consumer privacy legislation into law. In this episode of the Security Ledger podcast, we decided to go deep on the data privacy issue. We invited two experts on data privacy legislation and policy into the Security Ledger studios to talk. In our second segment, we're joined by Rahan Jalil, the CEO of Security AI, to talk about the impact that GDPR and state laws such as CCPA are having on how businesses manage and secure their data. But first, we welcome Stacy Gray into the studio. She's a senior counsel at the Future of Privacy Forum, and she and I talk about the progress towards federal data privacy law in the U.S. and what it might mean for businesses and consumers. I start out by asking Stacy about recent efforts on privacy legislation, including during the Trump administration, and what 2021 may have in store. Stacy Gray, I'm a senior policy counsel at the Future of Privacy Forum. Stacy, welcome to Security Ledger Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. So we're interviewing you because we're taking a look at the 
legislative agenda here in 2021 with a new administration, with a change of hands in uh, Congress. And uh, one of the issues that, that we've been following for many years is just the uh, need for federal data privacy laws and the prospect that we may actually see something like that past this legislative season. But you've been following this issue really closely. I guess, first of all, give us a little overview of the Trump administration vis-a-vis privacy. I know that in many other areas of policy, it was, a, it was a rocky ride. I will note that, you know, during the Trump administration, there was some meaningful legislation passed on like um, Internet of Things security, things like that. So there actually was some progress on cybersecurity related legislation, it tends to be a little bit more bipartisan. What did we see happen on the privacy front? Yes. Uh, so, so you're right. And it has been a pretty exciting last few years, in fact, in the federal privacy space. We've seen over 20 plus bills introduced from Democrats, Republicans on all the relevant committees in the Senate and the House. So this is really, we've seen lots of uh, Senate and House hearings on this issue, and it's been a really active legislative space. So it's an exciting time to be in it because I think, you know, as we now go into 2021 and 2022, it does seem like this is the window for lots of reasons, which we can, we should get into, but like, this is the window where we may actually see a a comprehensive baseline federal privacy law passed. Uh, baseline, just in the sense that it wouldn't be sectoral, because uh, as many people know, we actually have already a, a ton of sectoral privacy laws that are different and, and are all over the map on things like health records. There's HIPAA for, for medical records. There's rules around how banks and financial institutions can market to you using data. There's federal laws for video records and things like that. And the push now is to fill in the gaps between all of those sectors to regulate the more sort of routine and ubiquitous things like websites and mobile apps that are collecting commercial data outside of those sectors. If you were to characterize, what are the differences between, let's say, a Republican approach to privacy versus a Democratic approach? Is there any, is there any coherent ideology there? Or is it more kind of about the person who's bringing forth the legislation? They're remarkably similar in a lot of ways, although that that might be changing. What we're looking at specifically in the Senate Commerce Committee, there have been major important bills introduced by Chairman Wicker, the the previous chairman of the Senate Commerce Committee, who's a Republican chairman, the Safe Data Act. And there's also been a significant proposal introduced by the then ranking member, Senator Maria Cantwell. And they have a lot of things in common. With respect to, for instance, they would both very broadly define covered data and covered entities that would be regulated. So this is fairly new in U.S. law. Europe has been doing this for a long time. But but to define personal data very broadly as linked or reasonably linkable to people, such that it would include things like IP addresses or advertising IDs or, you know, uh, IMEIs or MAC addresses, that, that kind of thing being included yeah, in scope. Device identifiers, stuff like that, right? Yeah, including device identifiers. I mean, it seems obvious now because that's kind of where the global trend has gone, but but that's a big point of commonality. And they would all, the Republican and the Democratic bills would provide similar kinds of basic uh, consumer rights. So the ability to request access to your own data to have a degree of transparency by the business collecting the data, the ability to uh, request deletion or that the data be corrected or it be ported. So getting your data in a portable format so that you can bring it to a new platform. 
and some basic opt-outs, the right to object to certain data transfers and the right to opt in or consent to data collection when it's sensitive data, like biometric data, for example. These are all big points of commonality. There are some small, you know, important differences in there, but big points of commonality. And then the places where they really differ tends to be, at least so far, in Republican and Democratic approaches to enforcement. And of course, in federal preemption, which is the effect that the federal law would have on state laws, if the state laws go further, right? So those are two, you know, major not really core privacy issues, but what, what should the relationship between federal and state be and how should the law be enforced? So here in the States, obviously, um, we don't have a federal data privacy law, but we do have some pretty strong state laws, including the CCPA, the California Privacy Act. What has the passage of CCPA kind of meant practically for companies doing business in the U.S., given that, you know, 30 million people Good chance if you're a if you're a business of even modest size, you probably have some customers or employees who are California residents. Yeah, huge deal for the United States when the CCPA passed in uh, 2018, I believe it was. U.S. businesses generally can't avoid operating in California. It's the fifth largest economy in the world, right? I mean, and if you're talking about running a website, for example, there's just no way to exclude California visitors to that website. So it's turned out that it's become basically a... a I've been trying for years and I I have little issue for it. (laughs) (laughs) More specifically, Lakers fans, but that's really a different matter. Um. (laughs) Some companies have tried to do it, but a lot of the bigger companies and global companies have just said, you know, this is the law now. We're not going to try to break it up between different states. We'll just apply this to everyone. Yeah. So so that's been a big deal. You know, there's a little bit of debate, I would say, even within the privacy community on the real substantive strength of CCPA. Once it passed, what it has done is forced U.S. companies to take account of the data that they have, <laughs> to basic data mapping, in other words, for companies that had not previously had to comply with, you know, the GDPR, for example, the EU general data privacy. Regulation. So if you're just based in the United States and not so much worried about an EU or global presence, it might have been the first privacy law you'd ever had to deal with, although there, there are others, right, if you're just running a basic website or analytics platform. So just forcing companies to take account of what they have and do some basic mapping was one effect of the CCPA. The sort of core access and deletion rights in the CCPA were not really new. And the big thing that the CCPA does is require an opt-out of the sale of data. But sale is defined so broadly that it includes almost almost all sharing of data. And so that that's a big challenge. Companies had to operationalize that. They had to figure out how they were going to comply with it and how they were going to get requests and then authenticate those requests to the extent that you can authenticate requests. And um, And there's still some ongoing debate about global, what they call uh, global privacy settings, where you might set a privacy preference in your browser or in your phone and have that privacy preference broadcasted globally to every company that you come into contact with, rather than having to go to each, you know, each website that you visit or each app that you download and go and specifically opt out of each specific thing. 
we know that that kind of thing doesn't work for most people, um, not least because you got to be aware of every company, right, that might have your data. But the effect of having a, a globalized uniform opt-out is still being very hotly debated, I would say. But yeah, CCP has been very, very strong and very clear in that respect. And then more recently, in fact, in November, the voters in California updated that law again, the California Privacy Rights Act, which modifies existing law and strengthens it even further and creates a whole new California data protection agency to enforce the law. So that's going to be a huge deal. That, that law doesn't come into effect until 2023, but setting up the new agency is going to take place this year. It'll be staffed. They'll do rulemaking. It'll just be It'll be a large you know, body of work that starts rolling out in 2021 and 2022 that requires companies to start complying and thinking about it. And so uh, that's another reason why we might actually be in a window. What can we learn from GDPR and the implementation of that law over the last few years in Europe and to where we are now, which is we're starting to see some substantial penalties coming out and, and more strict enforcement of it. But you know, still things are kind of getting worked out. But what lessons are there to be learned from the GDPR experience? Which sounds like a bad band, actually, the GDPR experience. Uh, yeah. What have we learned from that? Oh, my goodness. That's, well, lots of things. Also, one thing is that there's been a little bit of a mythology around the GDPR that's built up over the last few years in the United States that the GDPR is an opt-in law. It requires consent, user consent for everything. Not actually the case at all. And I think that's been something people have started to learn about it over the last five years. What we see in the EU with cookie banners, for example, being absolutely ubiquitous and, you know, <laughs> frankly, a, a kind of annoying for a lot of people to be uh, requested that they consent to this and that. What I think we're seeing is that a lot of that actually comes from a different law called the e-privacy directive or the e-privacy regulation now being drafted as the e-privacy regulation. The e-privacy directive is more strictly speaking a privacy law. It says you can't place information onto a person's device like a cookie ID without permission. And in contrast, the GDPR is a much more flexible data protection set of regulations uh, rather than just privacy. And so there are lots of ways to collect information under the GDPR that are not opt-in consent. That's been a really important lesson because we're transitioning from this world of online advertising and cookies to a world of connected vehicles and micromobility and smart cities and robots and, you know. Passive biometrics, they often call them, right? Where you're, you're just kind of your behavior becomes the biometric. And something like a connected car collecting mm -hmm. information on a pedestrian, like it, there's no possible way to get that person's consent. And even if you could, you probably wouldn't want to because <laughs> you're going to get bias in who says yes and who says no. What you instead have to do is collect the data for a legitimate business purpose and then apply enough safeguards that you're not actually creating a privacy risk or you've mitigated that privacy risk pseudonymize the data, blur the faces, redact the faces, right? Like you don't actually need this or that. You don't need to keep it over as much time. You know, all of these things to keep the data collection minimal and the retention minimal and still do the kind of processing that you need to do. And so that's been a big area of research. 
Well, it's really interesting because like I actually looked because I, I do a lot of work around like right to repair, uh, right to repair issues. And obviously in Massachusetts, we've had a big right to repair ballot measure that passed in November regarding telematics data. And, um, you know, the auto industry was using kind of fear tactics to try and scare people about, you know, how that telematics data could be used to stalk them and get into their home and kind of pretty uh, gloom and doom type scenarios. They were all predicated on, oh, well, we're collecting all this data on you, but God, if you know your corner mechanic could get it, that'd be really bad for you. And it's like, well, but how is it really any better if you're off, you know, if the guy working in your dealership gets it, right? <laughs> and it's really hard to get car makers to talk about what data they're collecting on from connected vehicles, which is a lot. We know that there are thousands of sensors on them. But I did look and, and CCPA did provide, because of course they sell cars to California consumers, all these automakers had made kind of disclosures about the types of data that they collect. But I noticed that there really wasn't a lot of uniformity to them. Um, and they were also really hard to find. And it just struck me that consumers really are, are very much in the dark, particularly with these very sophisticated connected products like connected automobiles, which most cars are these days. I don't think most consumers even really understand that that there is this much data on them, that the car knows how much they weigh, that the car knows, you know, may have a camera in the passenger cabin, you know, taking video of their surroundings. And, and there's very little that we understand about how that data is being used or collected or stored or, or retained. It's totally true. It's transparency mechanisms, you know, these disclosures and privacy policies are often written by lawyers, right? They're, and they're written to comply with the law, and they're not necessarily useful to, to individual people. They can be useful to researchers and to maybe enforcers. But I, it does seem that for, I mean, for a lot of the reasons you point out, there's been a, a shift for a long time, but certainly in the last few years, to kind of get away from writing privacy laws that rely completely on user choice. Because... Yeah, right. To a certain extent, people are going to have different preferences for things that aren't aren't really that important. You know, like different preferences about whether they want to pay ten dollars a month for Spotify instead of getting the ads, or you know, join a loyalty program at the grocery store. Okay, but there are other things that I think the consensus is it's not appropriate to be asking people to consent to, or you know, there's there's as much effectiveness of allowing people to opt out. And in some ways, it's just maybe not even worth operationalizing it because it can't be operationalized in a way that allows you to authenticate requests even. So opting in and opting out, I mean, it's always going to be part of our landscape. I mean, this is just kind of the history of U.S. privacy law and relying on choice. Um, and a lot of it is that we've sort of relied on the Federal Trade Commission as a consumer protection agency to enforce a lot of this. But there's a growing call for, you know, not having that be everything. Like we, we need to have also minimum standards about what it's appropriate period to collect and what it isn't. And, uh, and that, what that looks like in law is like data minimization provisions and purpose limitation. You can't collect data for one thing and then go use it for something else or sell it to a marketer, you know. And those things become very, very important to create these, you know limits that don't rely on individuals exercising rights. And with connected products and connected product ecosystems, I mean, in a way, is consent kind of broken in that model anyway? Because if you buy a smart television set and say, 
I don't want to share my data with you, Samsung or LG, on what apps I'm using or what shows I'm watching. As far as I know, like that basically breaks the TV. Like you can't, in some ways you can't. They're going to bring up the consent agreement and either you're going to click I approve or in essence, you're going to have to bring the TV back to Best Buy because whatever, you know, the setup process is just not going to complete unless you consent to that agreement and the, and the features of the smart TV aren't going to work. So like you're not really consenting in that situation, <laughs> you know, it's like that scene from the Godfather, you know, it's like, you know, you wake up with the, with the horse head in your bed or something. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> um, sorry, I'm just thinking about that with the smart TVs. <laughs> it, that's true with a lot of privacy policies. I mean, my memory of, I think, at least Samsung smart TVs is they, they've got the mandatory privacy policy and they also have the opt out of certain, some of their data collection and use. It, it varies by vendor, but yes. Yeah, it, it varies. And it's much harder, I think, in the context of these like long historical manufactured devices where they're just getting into using data and trying to incorporate it into what was you know previously a dumb device, a dumb TV. So yeah, <laughs> it's hard. Are those things that we have any chance of seeing addressed in a federal law, like that type of bigger issue around these ecosystems that are basically premised on omnibus consumer data collection? Yes. I think something like a smart TV is exactly what this kind of law is trying to get at with some debate over how effective it could be, right? So having a mandatory opt-out over a certain scope of data collection and sharing and use would get to some of that. And having strong restrictions around minimal data collection and using data only for the legitimate purposes that you're collecting it for and not combining it and reusing it for additional purposes gets to some of that. And a lot of it turns into kind of a debate between first party and third party, right? So Samsung may have a lot of uh, data or, you know, insert company here. And if it's a large platform like a Facebook or an Amazon, they might have a lot of first party data that they can use without sharing or selling it. And so then you get into questions about, you know, are are small businesses who are just getting into the market at a bit of an unfair disadvantage because they can't buy and sell data, they need to amass it on their own. You know, and this is where this starts to overlap with a lot of antitrust issues. And I, I wouldn't even pretend to be an, an antitrust lawyer, but it, it does. No, but like we that. we know that's a that's a bubbling hot uh, issue on Capitol Hill yeah, on both sides yeah. of the aisle. So, yes, Absolutely. right. Absolutely. Definitely. Do we get to a point, let's say there is this, that either the, you know, some version of the Cantwell bill or the Wicker bill, you know, some compromise passes or something that looks like it. As a country, do we do we start to move away from this you-are-the-product type business model? Does it get harder for companies like Facebook or Google or Amazon to do what they've been able to get away with doing for the last you know 20 years? Or are there just a lot more pop-ups? <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, I think a lot of us would like to avoid the outcome that looks like lots more pop-ups and not much change or any change to existing business models. I wouldn't count it as a loss if we had more transparency and more, you know, because I think in some ways take what you can get, like this is, it would be a good thing to have more transparency. Sure. As long as it wasn't the end 
of privacy legislation in the states and in Congress. But having that be it and not really having any sort of shift in business models, I, th I think would not be an ideal outcome. But getting to the business models is in fact really hard because one, because it's uh, they're in entrenched and they're interconnected networks, for instance, in the advertising space of, of companies that are relying on data day to day. Uh, so very, very entrenched and I think very complicated. So one thing we've tried to do is just help bring more information to lawmakers about just the basics of how stuff works. You know, we do a, a 101 session, for instance, on, you know, how does a website load and where, do, how are cookies placed uh, and uh, how is an advertisement chosen for you in real time based on information that's sent into a real-time bidding auction, right? Because I think most people don't understand that that's happening in real time as the page loads. And what does that data flow look like? So that you can start to think about how how to regulate it, how how to stop some things and not others, just where to draw the lines. Yeah, that tech literacy issue is a huge uh, impediment. Uh, I see this with the right to repair as well. Like, you know, you can, where you're talking about, you know, big software publishers being like, if we have to provide you access with, you know, to the software update, you know, you're getting our source code. And you're like, no, that's not right. You know, but, you know, lawmakers are lawyers. They don't really understand the difference between source code and a compiled binary. And, you know, and, and that makes them easy to be manipulated, I guess. And the lawyers in the space don't necessarily, I'm, I'm one of them. I, you know, oh, yeah. 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 I mean, the people uh, making that argument are themselves lawyers who don't even understand what they're saying, but that's what their client told them to say. And so they're saying it, but yeah. Yeah. Well, getting, getting good information it can be really hard. And I'll just add one more thing into it, which is that, you know, in the absence of privacy laws, what companies often have to be thinking about is what is Apple going to do? Or what is Google going to do to the changes in their operating systems that will impact the data that I'm able to collect from users? We're seeing that with Apple and Facebook right now. Yeah. 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 Major deal. I mean, those the changes that Apple has been making with every rollout and update to their operating system over the last five, 10 years, tons of small changes that flew under the radar, I think, but had major impact, like when they started randomizing MAC addresses, for example. The changes in the last couple of years to the kinds of data that apps can collect, it, it has much more of an immediate major impact on business models um, than anything you know, co Congress is doing. Yeah, so far. Um, so in the last year, obviously, with the COVID pandemic, it's brought up a lot of issues around data and data privacy, but also, you know, the need often to, you know, leverage and muster publicly available data from mobile devices and so on for 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 the benefit of society right to do contact tracing and and inform people about you know uh, the test results and all this stuff and and you've written on this what do you think has been the takeaway as as a result of covid on that question about leveraging the powers of uh, companies or the data that companies collect and that the government collects to do battle with a pandemic. I mean, we've seen countries like China where basically there is no consent and the government controls all of the data have been, you know, quite effective at <laughs> leveraging that to keep COVID counts down. But I don't think people in the United States want to see us go that direction. I guess what what is the message of COVID? What did COVID teach us about some of these issues? 
Wow. Oh, gosh. Lots of lessons. I think the absence of having a federal privacy law really did a number on this conversation because at least in Europe, there are rules, right? There there are data protection authorities promoting guidance and sending out guidance and companies generally know what they're allowed to do and what they are not. And here, sort of in that vacuum, there was so much more ambiguity and slowness, I think, to respond and lack of trust from people, even when there were technological tools. So um, the efforts involving Apple and Google modifying and rolling out an API that allows access to Bluetooth data in a way that lets exposure notification occur without collecting location data, that was that was huge. And it required them to fix interoperability issues between Apple and Android quickly. And, and that was a that was a big, big deal. And it allowed states and not just states, but in, you know, private sector, some business, big businesses with lots of employees are doing this too, to create exposure notification apps. So you can get a notification if you've been near someone who was later diagnosed without sharing your location data, which is huge, a really big deal. One thing I think people were very right to be skeptical of right at the beginning was the sort of offer or the promise from companies that already have large data sets of location data, that it could be easily shared or used for COVID. Oh, we have all this data here. Let's use it. One major privacy violation if you're talking about, you know, your cell service provider, a Comcast or an AT&T. And two, that data is often not good enough for the kinds of uh, tracking you would need to do to tell if you've been within six feet of somebody for longer than, you know, a couple of minutes. So we saw a lot of promise with things like aggregate location trends being useful to local city and state public health authorities and figuring out, you know, where there might be a breakout next or where they need to send additional resources. And we saw, I think, the promise of being able to actually do this in a privacy protective way being realized. This might still, I think, be, if we can get adoption rates up enough, be a useful tool over the next year as people are going back to work and going back to school. Um, And if nothing else, it'll be useful potentially if there's a a future issue or future pandemic to know that we can do this in a privacy preserving way using the technology without just saying we're going to upload everything to a central database and track everyone. Data. Yeah. Stacey, it's been so great talking to you. And uh, I'd like to have you back sometime and follow up on some of this as some of the legislation starts to uh, take wing. Thanks, Paul. Well, it's going to be an exciting year. So, yeah, definitely something to watch. Stacy Gray of Future Privacy Forum, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Thanks a lot. Stacy Gray is a senior counsel at the Future of Privacy Forum. Up next... Data privacy and data security are often spoken of in the same breath, but they're actually discrete topics and discrete problems for organizations. If you want proof of that, look to the healthcare sector. In the U.S., healthcare firms must comply with HIPAA, one of the most stringent patient data privacy laws in the world. But that hasn't saved the healthcare sector from a rash of devastating security breaches as hackers preyed on insecure and poorly maintained IP infrastructure to steal sensitive health information on hundreds of millions of Americans. In our second segment, we invited Rahan Jalil, 
the CEO of Security.ai, that's S-E-C-U-R-I-T-I dot A-I, into the studio to dig deep on the question around security and privacy. Security is a firm that sells privacy management and compliance services. And in this conversation, Rahan and I talk about the evolving thinking on data privacy and security and about the impact that the EU's GDPR and state laws like CCPA have had on how businesses manage and secure their data. Rahan and I also talk about whether technology might provide a way to bridge the gap between security and privacy, allowing companies to derive value from the data they store without exposing it to malicious or unscrupulous actors. My name is Rehan Javil. I'm the CEO for a company, uh, Security.ai, uh, which is a forester leader in privacy management, privacy ops, as well as in the same framework, we provide security privacy compliance. Uh, to, to I feel like privacy. in the media, um, often security and privacy kind of get lumped in together, but they're actually distinct things. Um, and uh, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but maybe just give us your kind of take on, you know, the um, boundaries between security and privacy and, and how one kind of influences the other. They're, they're not the same thing, really. Yeah, I think there is there is a bit of an overlap in dependencies. Uh, I would say securing the data, understanding where your sensitive data lies and securing it is the more foundational piece because without that, there is no privacy that you can offer to the, your consumers, your employees, and whoever data, whoever data actually you have in your environment. Whereas privacy is all about uh, an individual's rights on the data how the data is collected, how the data is stored, how it's processed, and the rights for people to actually get the data back, and then how this data is used to market people. But there, there is a significant overlap, uh, but at the end, you have to make sure that this data is secure, uh, because without security, there is no privacy that, that can be given. Uh, and, and that really is where the, I would say, the, uh, there's a movement towards one framework, which can enable companies to do both things. Uh, you know, in the time. United States, and I'm sure a lot of your <clears throat> businesses in the U.S., it's a very mixed environment, right? So we have industry-based uh, privacy laws, for example, in the healthcare industry, HIPAA, uh, some in the finance uh, vertical as well, banking and finance, um, and then other parts of the con- of the of the economy that are totally unregulated that way. And then, in addition, we've got kind of state data privacy laws that have come about in the last like 15 years, some of which are very you know, uh, toothy, like California's, some aren't, um, but no real kind of federal data privacy standard. So practically, where does that leave um, companies and and individuals in the U.S.? I think U.S. is is on a journey towards, I would say, uh, more uh, coordinated federal law uh, on the privacy side of things, like California being uh, one of the prime examples, which has I would say the uh, most meaningful uh, data privacy law at this point. And then you right after that, you're seeing Virginia, Virginia CDPA, which is already being uh, approved by the House. And I think it's sitting by the governor and others to kind of approve it. Hopefully it gets done in, in March. And then New York uh, is coming. And Washington has, of course, been trying. Uh, I think what we are seeing that few major states uh, are going to enact these laws, even if there's no federal law, effectively, it's many, many large companies 
are actually treating as a So there's been some interesting reporting recently. Uh, the organization DLA Piper came out with a report on GDPR. This is the EU's Federal Data General Data Protection Rule um, and on, on fines that have really jumped uh, significantly in the last year or two years, um, including for U.S. companies uh, who, have, who have run afoul of EU regulators. So GDPR is not new. It's, it's been it's been live now for a couple of years. Why are we suddenly seeing, um, you know, kind of the jump in fines? Um, in fact, I think there could, could be multiple different views on it. Some people may say, you know, it, it should be much earlier and much bigger fines. Yeah, that were late. Uh, the, and they were late. We're late. We're just simply catching up. Uh, these violations, perhaps many of those were actually going on. Um, and this, the size of the fines that people also... You can argue to say, you know, is it the maximum that is allowed uh, for these violations? Is it just the start of it? I would say. So um, I, I think it simply is taking taking a little bit of time for GDPR to settle in. People are now paying attention to enforcing it, and I think it's just the beginning. It's not that there's a, an obvious spike here. I think it's just the beginning of enforcement action that that are that are starting. Uh, and other thing is, if there is ever a compromise or a data breach, it brings attention to the companies and the regulators start looking at more carefully that if a data is being breached, was it actually being, uh, you know, that was the company doing all the things to comply with privacy regulation. Take the example of, you know, British Airways or Marriott Hotel, uh, both actually had some kind of a compromise uh, and then kind of a triggered um the deeper assessment and that caused the fine to be. So if there are more breaches, you probably can easily see more fines will start coming. I guess what practically has GDPR uh, meant in terms of how they are managing, uh, managing the privacy of their customers? Um, I think there was some speculation kind of around the time that GDPR, you know, took effect that, you know, maybe it would become in, in essence a de facto federal uh, privacy law in the U.S. as well, just given that <clears throat> many big companies, you know, have customers in Europe. But have have we seen that happen? And and what what is GDPR compliance look like for U.S. firms right now? Yeah, I think uh, so. There are a few dimensions to it. The first is if the companies were multinational and global, many of them took it quite seriously to to start the journey towards it. Uh, and this is when it took the first step towards it. So let's understand what does GDPR provide. GDPR provides a way for people to exercise their rights that they have on their own data that these companies actually um, process, store, and so forth. So uh, many companies actually have to bring up their DSR portals. Uh, consent requirements uh, were very explicit, like when you collect data, what kind of consent do you have? Um, aligned with it, uh, you know, you have cookie consent kind of requirements. Then now also data residency requirements. So many companies started their journey to understand their data. They started with the journey of doing data mapping exercises, putting DSR portals and so forth. But perhaps I would say at the level of initial maturity, a lot of manual way of doing things, a uh, lot of uh, survey driven uh, more compliance-oriented work that got done. 
by the U.S. firms and internationally also, but because people wanted to make sure that at least something is in place. As and that was a great step as a first step. As we progress, and especially with CCPA coming into North America, which means you know touching to a lot more more people uh, within the U.S. side of things. Um, of course, more companies are under that scope, even if you're not multinational. Um, and we're also seeing more attention to uh, doing things more with technology and automation. For instance, data mapping, the when first time it got done, it was pretty much like an interview uh, and a consulting work. Consultants would come in, they will talk to people, interview like what kind of data are you collecting and what, what processing you're doing, document in some kind of a tool or some kind of a spreadsheet and call it my, I have a data map. Now, fast forward to 2021, there is a huge move, movement towards automating it, uh, understanding where exactly data lies, what's sensitive, what's not sensitive, which resident it belongs to. And then also, if the request for access or delete comes in, how do you automate that process uh, and, and so forth? And understanding if the data is not moving across different geographies breaking any data residency uh, kind of requirement automating that side of things and same goes for consent um, where collecting the consent in a more methodical way and even maybe tying it back to your privacy notice and telling like you know what kind of cookies are dropping and so forth so we are seeing a maturity cycle uh, evolving from completely manual to now starting to look at more you know, tech and automation side of things um, also, we are seeing that more uh, responsible companies, uh, they are treating CCP or GDPR like this is federal. This is like universal. They're not trying to say, hey, because your request came from Texas or some other state, uh, I'm not going to give you the right. They're trying to basically say, look, comply with the most stringent of the requirements and give the rights to everyone because just the right thing to do. And, and companies like Microsoft and all have publicly come out and said, we'll treat GDPR equal and kind of requirements and give it to everyone regardless of, you know, which country you're coming from, right? So that's what that's what we see. Uh, and uh, the trend is actually really picked up um, end of 2020, 2021, um, uh, especially people going more online, more digital data, more healthcare data, uh, even employers actually have a norm, more, more your well-being data uh, sitting in their, uh, on their side of things. That's, that's what the trend we are seeing in the industry. I think most now. people, the, their exposure to GDPR is probably, like you said, those, those little pop-ups when you visit new websites saying, you know, here are the cookies we, cre- you know, we collect and, you know, what do you, what do you agree to? Do you agree to, you know, all of them, some of them, you know, and so on, that kind of workflow that is new, right? I mean, 10 years ago, <laughs> you had no idea what, what data was being collected on you when you visited a site or what types of cookies they were placing. So that, but. What, what do you think um, that that's the most visible impact of GDPR, at least as, as far as I can tell? What do you think is actually the most um, powerful or influential change as a result of uh, the GDPR? I think the most fundamental thing is saying that privacy or digital privacy is a fundamental human right and making it front and center. And not only that, what cookies are you dropping? and what data you're collecting, creating more transparency through your privacy notices or actually at the time of interaction with the consumer, but giving the rights to the people there we can go and say, don't track me or you know, do not sell my information. And even to the going to the extent and saying, please delete my information if you have anything, exercising your right uh, at an individual level 
That is the most fundamental difference, uh, I think, that, that GDPR kind of enabled. And we have seen the GDPR-like laws globally. You have LGPD, very much like GDPR. CCPA, very much like GDPR. You go to Singapore, very much like that. And even China, very much like uh, that. So it inspired, I would say, globally a movement where in privacy is being treated a basic human right in, 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 the, in the digital realm. And you can exercise that right and you can ask data to be deleted uh, from the systems uh, with the granularity of an individual. And I think that's what most fundamental difference I would say. Interesting. Do, do you think, uh, certainly prior to GDPR, but also subsequent to the law, we certainly read a lot of stories and have read a lot of stories about, you know, just heinous data breaches, right? Like huge collections of customer data, user data, patient data that were just, you know, left on some insecure AWS bucket and, you know, got got indexed, you know, or or got stumbled upon by some somebody who is looking maybe not very hard for it. Um, is there any evidence that those types of things are on the decline, at least for companies that are abiding by GDPR, that that there's been we talked we started off talking about the sort of security privacy um, interplay. Is there any evidence that the more focus on privacy has produced fewer of those types of uh, gaffes? Yeah, I mean, think about CCPA. Um, first of all, I mean, securing your regulation uh, would have been the right thing to do because it go goes in the hands of the hackers which actually go sell it uh, and they can actually go comp, you know, have a bad reputation on the name of the company. Um, so even if there was just simply no GDPR, uh, the, the things just like our homes, uh, nobody tells us to keep it secure. There's no regulation. I can leave my doors and windows and, you know, everything open, but we make sure that we have cameras on and we make sure that, you know, they're locked up and then things like that. Right. Or we do take all the prevention if we feel like we are under threat. Very similar to that on the data side, uh, there is even way more threat coming from very organized uh, cyber criminals and companies have to take steps to ensure this, in particular, uh, sensitive data, because these these uh, cyber hackers, they typically go after your sensitive data. And that's the most fundamental thing that we're trying to basically go out, whether it's your intellectual property, whether it is, you know, sensitive personal information, which is has a market tied to it. Uh, or your financial information, which is certainly has a market tied to it. So keeping it secure is in the interest of the company anyways. But what GDPR and like CCPA did that in case if there is actually a compromise that happens and you have a breach, you have to notify the individuals within a very short amount of time. And at that time, it opens up the door for civil action, uh, like class action lawsuits. And that could be very punitive. So on one hand, it's not just the reputation is gone at, at this point. You have up to $750 per incident. But per, per incident really means that... Per, rec per uh, record, really. Yeah. Yeah. Per record, right? So um, what does it mean? I mean, if you have a million people, uh, data lost, multiply 750 by a million, is like 750 million up to 750 class action lawsuit on you. So does it change behavior? Uh, I certainly believe so, that you know, companies will start taking securing data because of a privacy regulation way much more 
then they perhaps would have should have done any. Have we seen any pattern in the fines that have been assessed, particularly the sort of big the big fines? And there have been a few big fines assessed um, in terms of what 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 type of signaling the uh, regulators are are trying to do around GDPR. It was certainly, I think, if you look at British Airways and yeah. Marriott, they were all triggered by uh, the breaches first. Uh, all the fines were not as, as massive as it could have been, but I think it's the beginning. In California, it has not started mm. as yet, the enforcement. Uh, technically, it has started, but right in the middle of COVID, I think people yeah. are making sure that you know this is not an additional burden. But it's uh, writing on the wall because it's not just the attorney general who can actually put a fine on you. It's actually class action lawsuits that can come after a breach. That probably could be a bigger issue. That's a kind of right of action. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. I think that there's at some point a, a technological fix for the tension between privacy and the desire of companies like Google, Facebook, and others to you know monetize data. I mean, obviously there there is. Now, you know, technologies that allow you to do uh, analysis on encrypted data without without exposing the the actual data itself. Do you think that this is a problem that we're going to be able to solve with technology or is this tension between, you know, wanting to collect data, wanting to mine it, monetize it, put it to use and, you know, violating people's privacy is is one that we're not going to be able to resolve without, you know, again, laws. I think without regulation, uh, it is not going to be pra- even imaginable. <clears throat> because even if technology exists, uh, and if big tech and in general the enterprises don't adopt it, and they don't actually have no economic incentive and financial incentive to adopt any of such tech, which gives you know rights to people on their data, uh, because it's not the fundamental part of their core core business. Uh, without regulation, there's almost no reason. Uh, for them to actually be adopting it. Now, certainly on the security side, there'll be more and more tech use because there is self-interest uh, alignment is there where no company wants to be, uh, be in the news or be hacked and you know lose their customers' data to, to hackers. Um, there you will see more adoption of as advanced technology as possible uh, by forward-looking companies because it's really in their self-interest. But uh, without regulation, on the privacy side, giving rights to people on the data, um, it's, it's almost you know hard to imagine that there'll be incentive for companies to put something in place. Okay, final question. So for for listeners, podcast listeners who are at organizations, private sector, public sector, you know they hear uh, acronyms like CCPA or GDPR, and their heart starts racing because they know that you know. They maybe haven't done as much as they could um, to to pay attention to those. Um, what would your advice to them be on on where to start um, if they're concerned about uh, these, you know, again, toothy privacy regulations here in the United States, over in Europe? Um, what's a good place for them to start? I think primarily um, the way to think is that this could be taken as an opportunity to build trust and brand with the. Uh, consumers, instead of treating it like, oh, I got to be doing this thing, like the way Apple took it up, privacy as their mantra. Um, and many of the, even Microsoft uh, picked up privacy as a mantra. So you, you can look at even Satya and Tim Cook and all being very vocal about it. They kind of took this as a defining moment 
for the company to build uh, established trust. I think that that is one path uh, instead of doing it grudgingly, uh, you know, uh, adopt it, be known for it. Uh, that's an opportunity for many, many uh, companies to build brand with it, right? To do that, so it's not just talk. Um, it has to, you have to instrument your systems on the back end and the front end that when you collect the data, being more transparent, giving people the options to opt out of things, taking their consent, recording it, when the people should be able to come back and revoke their consent, right? They feel good about it. Giving people the options to come to their websites and say, hey, you know what, tell me what you're processing uh, about me, giving that level of transparency. And if they don't like about it, you know, having it, they're asking it to be shut down or stop processing or, you know, delete the information. Having people uh, the right um, and giving them full control is again, builds the brand. Uh, also, all the regulation gives like 30 days or 45 days to complete the consumer requests. Really, the, the forward-looking companies are not going by that 45 days because it can create a lot of frustration among the consumers that they come to your site and say, delete my data, and you say, I'm going to be back in 45 days, tell you whether we've done it or not. Or you know, then tell them, I need another 45 days. It actually creates frustration with the brand. Whereas more forward-looking companies, they do it in minutes and hours. Uh, and they confirm it, they give you the report, they, they got done, right? Yeah, so I think this is really an opportunity to establish uh, your brand with privacy uh, and establish the trust uh, that comes with it uh, and loyalty that comes with it. Kind of um, compete on secure, think, on, on privacy in some ways, right? Have it, have it be a competitive advantage. Completely. And there are some companies who are really standing out. They're saying, if you give me your data, I'll do everything to make it safe. And I'll give you all the rights that you should have. Or maybe you don't even have, but I'll give you those rights to actually go exercise it. Microsoft has done that. Rahan Jalil, CEO of Security. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Thank you so much for hosting. This was a great conversation. Rahan Jalil is the CEO of security.ai.